We are going to continue our series in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, Today we will be reading Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. As you are able, I'd invite you to please stand for the reading of God's word. Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. This is God's word. You may be seated. some people here who I have not yet had a chance to meet. Um, If that's the case, my name is Pat. I currently serve as one of four elders here at Christ Community. And it is a privilege, as always, to get to speak to you from God's Word. This morning's text touches on themes that I think all of us are able to relate with in really tangible ways. Themes related to fear and faith. How do we... As a people of God, in a world that so obviously opposes truth, live as dependent agents of God? How do we live as a dependent people of God to build and advance the kingdom of God? As we look at Nehemiah in our text this morning, we're going to see a picture of what God intends for us. Before we do that, let's just establish the setting and the timeline of where we are as we continue. If you think back, hopefully you've been here with us, if you think back to our study through Ezra, you will remember that King Artaxerxes made a decree concerning the building of the city of Jerusalem. And it said this, from chapter 1, verse 21, Therefore make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. Now, why would he do that? 
Well, the next verse tells us, he said, and take care not to be slack in this manner. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? So the king was convinced by adversaries of God's people that if they were allowed, that they were allowed to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, they would essentially not pay taxes to the king, which he was not going to have. And so he shut down the building project. So our section today is all about Nehemiah going to the king and asking him to allow him to go back to Jerusalem to finish building the walls of the city and the city itself. That's the what of this section. But the when is also really important for our context this morning. From the context here, we believe that this is about four months after the events of chapter one. Remember last week when Nehemiah heard about the command of the king to shut down the building of Jerusalem, he was horribly sad. The text says that he sat down and he wept and he mourned for days. So what did he do then? Well, as Craig showed us last week, he prayed to God and he fasted. He got on his knees in his sadness. He put off bread made with human hands. And he sought God. He confessed sin on behalf of the people. And he cried out to God for his hand to move. Look at chapter 1 verse 11. It read this. This is Nehemiah. It says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. And to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man, this man being the king. So with the placement of chapter two, starting immediately after this, we assume that Nehemiah has been praying and fasting for four months. Four months, he continued to serve the king as a cupbearer, while all the while interceding for God's people, expressing a need for God and growing more dependent on God. So why is this important? Well, because the task ahead of him caused him concern. The task ahead of him was a dangerous one. See, King Artaxerxes reigned as the king of Persia at the time. His reign included the land that is referred to in Ezra and Nehemiah as the land beyond the river, which is where Judah was located. Any going ahead for getting the building campaign of Jerusalem started again was going to have to come through the king. And scholars record that King Artaxerxes was at the time the most powerful man in the world. He is a powerful dictator. And if offended, it would not be at all out of the question for him to end Nehemiah's life right then and there. So you have this major contrast. You have a Nehemiah, a member of the family of God. He is part of the heartbroken people of God. Right, who are back left in Jerusalem with a a city in, in ruins. And then you have Artaxerxes, a Gentile Persian king who from worldly senses holds all the power over the land and over the people of God. In this scene, you have the most powerful feared king in all of the world. And then you have that king's brokenhearted cupbearer, his food taster. And it's through this relationship that God will initiate the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Before we go further, let me pray for us again this morning. Father, I do ask, as we look at your text, 
As we draw out these themes of fear and faith, as we see that you're calling us to be dependent people of God, I pray that you would meet us here, that you would do that work in our hearts, even this morning. Make your word alive to us today as we hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's look a little bit closer at the text together. Okay, keeping in mind, this is Nehemiah actually recounting the story. In verse 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So as I, as I mentioned, four months had passed, right? Four months of prayer, of fasting, of mourning for the people of God whose city lay, laid in ruins. Surely this would have made Nehemiah feel emotionally heavy. But up until this point, Though we have no reason to believe he didn't have regular contact with the king, Nehemiah had not shown this depressed state to the king. We'll see why in a second. But look how the king responds to him. He said this, And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. See, the king, who spent a lot of time with him, was very observant, right? Nehemiah was serving the king at the feast of the new year. So it's supposed to be a happy event, a joyful celebration. But Nehemiah is anything but happy. He could not at this point, and I think potentially even he would not contain his sadness anymore. It was too much for him, and he was prepared to act, as we'll see in a moment. The king saw him in his sadness, and he called him out. And Nehemiah responds with this to himself. Then I was very much afraid. So how is it that simply being seen as sad could produce so much fear? Well, as one author put it, Persian kings were seldom reluctant when it came to killing, even when it concerned people who were close to them. Nehemiah's demeanor could easily be construed as an affront to the king. See, maybe the king would simply be offended by a pouting servant, right? No one likes a party pooper, and this party host could chop his head off with a moment's notice. More likely, I think, Nehemiah knew that it was the king's actions against God's people that set off his sadness. It was his decision to stop the building, and he was afraid to bring it up for fear of offending him. It's kind of like... Me, as the king of my home. When one of my kids asks for more screen time, as I'm sure your kids might, and I tell them no, and then I find them sad a while later in a room, and I ask, why do you look so sad? If they say, well, it's because I can't have screen time. If I'm not walking in the spirit, there is a good possibility that the displeasure of king dad will be doled out against the unentertained boy subject. And for those of you who are now concerned that I call myself the king of my home, I don't. It's just an example. But for four months, okay, after four months, after praying, after fasting, after mourning, after seeking the hand of God to move, now is the moment that Nehemiah will speak on behalf of his people to move toward rebuilding the city of God. Look at his words. I said to the king, let the king live forever. 
Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? Can you hear the intensity of his words? First, he honors the king. He wants the king to know that he desires that no harm would come to him. Have a long life, my king. That respect is shocking by itself. But then he makes a plea on the graves of his fathers. Now, why would he do that? There's some speculation here, but likely he is expressing words that he hopes would produce empathy from the king. As a cupbearer, Nehemiah would have been fairly close with him. He was a trusted servant, and as such, he was appealing to the king on the unfairness of his ancestors being buried beneath a city left incomplete. But then Nehemiah says a very important thing. I think it's probably the most important comment in this entire section. And he records this. So I prayed to the God of heaven. Now left to stand on its own, this sentence probably isn't extremely noteworthy. If you're like me, there are many times throughout your day in random circumstances where I would pause briefly to pray. Short prayers, before a hard conversation, before I meet with clients, before a meal, or sometimes when I've had a bad day, I'll pray before I enter my home so that I'm able to be fully present. But this small phrase in this context comes after four months of prayer and fasting about the exact topic that Nehemiah and the king are about to engage. We'll see this in a moment that Nehemiah clearly had a plan of attack when this opportune conversation presented itself. But when the time came, he did not rely on the four months of prayer he had been engaged in. Rather, he paused and he prayed again. Here's the first main point I want us to take away this morning. Prayerful dependence on God gives courage in the midst of fear. Prayerful dependence on God gives courage in the midst of fear. See, it's no accident that he recorded this. I don't think he was trying to make himself look good. Listen to what one author said. So there is no greater indicator of how much one depends on God than one's propensity to pray. When one prays, one acknowledges the inadequacy of oneself and the total sufficiency of God to meet every need. You see, Nehemiah was prepared for this moment, this terrifying moment, when the king would ask, what are you requesting? Nehemiah knew exactly what he was going to request, but not a word left his mouth until he prayed and sought the help of God. This is a critical component to actually accomplishing the work of God. It would seem reasonable to believe that he was incredibly anxious for this moment. But in his fear and anxiousness, four months of prayer prepared him in that moment to remember again that he needed God to sustain him. That he needed God to give him courage. Prayerful dependence on God does not promise that you won't have fear. I assure you that. But it will give you courage to persevere in the midst of fear. Pause for a second and zoom out and consider what is being communicated here from the posture of Nehemiah toward God. Here he is standing in fear in front of one of the most powerful men in all of the world at the time. And he prays to his God. He prays because as powerful as the king of Persia might be, Nehemiah knows that the power of God is far greater. 
Nehemiah has access to that power. So let me ask you this. Do you realize what is available to you through the gift of prayer? Listen to these verses from Psalm 2 regarding kings for our context this morning. It says this. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. See, if we would pray, we have access to the power and the protection and the wisdom and the comfort and the strength. All of that of the one who sits on the throne of all creation to the one who has determined the first and the last breath of the greatest of all rulers of every age. I feel compelled as I was writing this to speak directly to those here who are part of our youth, who are particularly in the youth group. So one of the things that I love about our youth group, and I want you all to know this, whether you have kids or not, is that they all pray together when they meet. Now, I know, as everyone else does, that Mitch is pretty much the best youth leader in all of the land, and he's got a whole lot of fun things for you all to be doing together. I know because I've seen the videos, but things that get me most excited is that you are in God's word together and that you pray with each other and for each other. As you're getting older, as you're learning to walk with Jesus independently from your parents, one of the most significant traps that you can fall into is believing that Bible reading and prayer are just check marks that you have to get done in order to be a good Christian. That is simply not true. And I know a lot of us, your parents included, can often feel guilty when we fail to pray consistently. But prayer is not something we do in order to be good Christians. Prayer is the way that we depend on God. Think about all of the times where you have fear before a test, when you're in a conflict with a friend, when you feel overwhelmed with school, whenever you feel anxious or afraid. If you are a follower of Jesus, then you have access as a 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 year old person, you have direct access to the help that you need in those moments. But it's hard to remember that in difficult situations if you have not learned to depend on God in prayer in your normal everyday life. See, that one little prayer from Nehemiah was effective because it was the continuation of a life steeped in prayer. A man named Marvin Brenneman said this, quick prayers are possible and valid if one has prayed sufficiently beforehand. Now, if any of you thinks for all of us that I'm making too big a deal about this small statement of prayer from Nehemiah, pay attention to what comes next in our text. Nehemiah said that he was afraid, but after he prays, you're going to see a very different man. His demeanor changes in the phrase between verses four and five. And that goes like this. I was afraid, so I prayed to the Lord, and then I said to the king. And this is what he says. And if there's any way we could have this back up on the screen starting in verse 5, that would probably be helpful. This is what he says. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it, And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? 
So it pleased the king to send me when I'd given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to the governors of that province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was on me. There's a few things I want us to see here. Things that, that happen right after Nehemiah prays. First, he repeats that statement that the city he wants to rebuild is the city where his father's graves are. But he still doesn't say that it's Jerusalem. Instead, he asked to go to Judah. Now, Jerusalem was the most important city in Judah where the temple stood, but Nehemiah still doesn't state the name. Why? Well, I think I'll agree with some who've written that this was an attempt to help the king save face. Obviously, the king knew where Nehemiah wanted to go. He wasn't dumb. But by not bringing it up directly to the king, he doesn't rub it in his face. And he was, in fact, the one that stopped the building, which was forcing him to have to go back. And so Nehemiah is being generous to the Gentile king. Second observation, the king asks him how long he will be gone. Nehemiah has favor with the king who obviously wants him to come back when he is finished. And in fact, we'll see later, he does. Presumably, Nehemiah had already determined how long this journey and the task at hand were going to take him. And he gave him a time frame and the king was pleased with it. And it isn't mentioned again. See, Nehemiah didn't have to think about it. He knew he had favor with the king and he knew the time it would take and he knew exactly what to tell him. Third thing to notice, he didn't just ask about rebuilding the city. He asked the king to send out letters to governors that he would be protected on his journey. He asked the king to give him the supplies necessary for the build. And if you caught what else he did, listen again for verse eight. That he, may give you my, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city, and here it is, and for the house that I shall occupy. Prayerfully dependent, yet fear-prone Nehemiah even went so far as to ask the king to build him a house to live in while he's rebuilding the city. That's bold. I don't believe for a second that Nehemiah just said whatever was coming to his mind at that time. He knew exactly what he wanted to communicate to the king. I don't know that he knew when that conversation was going to happen, but he has way too many details to believe that it was just off the cuff. He had four months to pray and fast and to grow increasingly more dependent on the Lord his God. But he also had four months to plan. This wasn't a wait for the moment that the king sees my sad face and asks me about it and then let go and let God. Nehemiah knew everything that he needed. He had planned for it. He had prayed about it. He had planned well in advance all the while being dependent on the Lord. As one author put it, Nehemiah sought to be used by God to answer his own prayers. Second major point I want us to see here is that God works through the prayerful planning of his people to accomplish his redemptive purposes. I remember a story from back in my college days with crew. Every year, as was just happening over the last couple months, graduating seniors would give talks at the weekly meetings. 
And a good friend of mine was giving a senior talk based on a significant life experience that he had had on the mission field. He had planned, edited, re-edited this talk for many days. I remember praying with him and looking at it. And then it came time for the weekly meeting, and I remember him saying, you know what? I decided to scrap that. I think the Holy Spirit has something else he wants to say. I'm just going to let him speak through me. As I recall, that talk was not very good. It was a bunch of mismatched ramblings from a good heart, but with no prayerful planning. A fearful Nehemiah, prayerfully dependent on God, having planned diligently, would be used by God to rebuild the city of God. He was afraid. He prayed to the Lord. Then he spoke boldly what he had planned to receive all that he required and needed. I think about us here at Christ Community. You know, the elders met together a few weeks ago for an all-day meeting. We spent time praying for the needs of our church and praising and thanking God together, praying for one another and praying for God to lead us. And then we went to the whiteboard. Actually, Craig and John went to the whiteboard because if you know me, I really hate whiteboards. But by the time we were done, we had a 16 by 4 foot whiteboard space planned out with diagrams and charts and a whole bunch of other stuff. And it's all under the heading of wanting this church to be about what God is about. We want us and all of you to become more like Jesus. And we want the gospel to be preached as far outside of these doors as possible so that other people can come in and join us. And you know how we're going to do that? James 1.5 says this. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. Psalm 37.4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Philippians 4.6. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. How are we as a church going to participate in the mission of God to make disciples? We're going to pray. We're going to look to God in his word. And we're going to pray according to the promises in God's word. And then with boldness, we're going to go and do the will of God. And I want us to know what Nehemiah knew. Look at the second half of verse 8. It says, and the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. See, I love what we're learning from this exchange. Nehemiah knew exactly why the king granted his request. Yes, he had favor with the king. But that favor came because he knew that the good hand of the Lord was upon him. One of the things that we're looking to God for in the future is a home as a church. We don't think that this soccer field is going to be our Sunday morning gathering spot forever. So we put together a team to help us figure out what might be next for Christ community. And in case you're wondering, we call this team Space Force. I don't know whose idea that was, but I love it. One of my personal great weaknesses that's been convicted as I look at this text is that I constantly have to confess to the Lord a lack of patience. My tendency and my fear and my anxiety is to find the easiest, fastest option and just move on it. Can we go back to the Methodist church? Can we find a new space? Can we rent a new space? Pop up tents? I don't know, but I know my impulsiveness has one substantial glaring problem. I can lack a prayerful dependence on God. 
it's easier for me to just move and do something than it is for me to patiently wait on the Lord. You see, all of the best laid plans that we could put on a whiteboard, even the best of intentions, will be carried out in vain if the good hand of God is not upon us. How about you? Where in your life, consider, where in your life right now are you fearful? What situation are you facing that produces anxiety? A situation maybe where you are prone to move full speed ahead without contemplating what God would have for you or your family. Are you waiting patiently on the Lord? Are you growing prayerfully dependent on him as you seek out his promises in his word? The encouragement to us is to seek him, to pray. Pray so that you might have courage in the Lord and pray so that you will be wise in your actions. Finally, Nehemiah tells us that what he asks for was coming to pass. Look at verses 9 and 10. It said, Then I came to the governors of the, prom- of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, ser- servant heard this, it displeased them greatly. That someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So Nehemiah gets what he needed. Protection from the king that he has asked for. No one would dare touch him because he came with letters from the king. God did that. It's like David going to fight Goliath. He wasn't protected because of the strength or the accuracy of a boy's slingshot. He had courage because he knew that the good hand of God was on him and God was faithful. So it is with Nehemiah. The two people mentioned here are adversaries of God's people. If we look at the end of verse 10, we see that they were displeased greatly. And why? They were displeased because Nehemiah had come to seek the welfare of God's people. That's the final point that none of us should miss. Seeking the welfare of God's people displeases the world. And of course we know this. There are billions of people on this earth all contending for a finite amount of power. But there is a God who has infinite power. When he steps in and dictates the steps of dictators, the kingdom of God pushes back against darkness and the people of the world are displeased. When you step back and look at the story of Nehemiah thus far from chapter one until now, it can be easy to say, just be like Nehemiah. He's a dependent servant of God, and there are many qualities about his life, even from these first two chapters, that are worthy of being emulated. But we have to look at a bigger picture. Who is the hero of this story, truly? The answer is, of course, God. It was God who placed Nehemiah in this story of history for such a time as this. It was God who gave him favor with the most powerful king in the world. It was the good hand of God that was upon him. It was God who was ultimately seeking the welfare of his people. See, God has always been acting for the welfare of his people. For the Israelites in that day, God sent Nehemiah to contend for the welfare of God's people. He protected Nehemiah. He went before him. He gave him courage. And as a result, this man, this servant of God, went to rebuild the city of God. God sent Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of the city and to protect God's people, to be in that moment their salvation. 
Nehemiah wasn't, was in a way, he was in a way rebuilding the salvation of God's people and restoring the glory of the Lord in Jerusalem. God is still seeking the welfare of his people today. For all who would believe in his name, God has sent his son Jesus, the ultimate source of welfare. See, Jesus has come and given his life to restore salvation ultimately for us. Listen to how Jesus responds to Pilate in John's gospel, chapter 19. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered this. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. So unlike Nehemiah, Jesus was unafraid. He was fully and perfectly dependent on his father in heaven. But also, unlike Nehemiah, God eventually removed his good hand from Jesus. And pursuing our welfare cost him his life. But it isn't a momentary protection. The salvation that Christ offers is forever. We're not simply rebuilding a city that will eventually decay like the whole world around us is. The kingdom of God is at hand. God has made his dwelling not in a temple in a city, but by the Holy Spirit. God's dwelling place is in his people, this people. Church, Christ community. We are called to the same thing that Nehemiah was called to, bringing salvation to God's people and proclaiming the glory of God to the world. We do that. We do that by boldly proclaiming the good news that Christ came and sacrificed his life to save sinners. Do you want to know what displeases the world? That. The good news of Jesus Christ will displease anyone who refuses to bow on me and call him Lord. See, we are called, you and I, everyone in this room who calls himself a disciple of Jesus, we are called to build the kingdom of God. And how will we do that? We will do that in the midst of our fears by growing as prayerful, dependent agents of God. We will do that as we prayerfully plan according to the wisdom of God found in his word. We will do that when we go and make disciples proclaiming the goodness of God to anyone who will listen. We will do that with the full knowledge that even though the world is opposed to God, we go with the good hand of God upon us. Christ has come. Christ has risen from the grave to prove it. Where do you need courage to do the work of God? Are you afraid to share the good news with a member of your family? With a neighbor? Are you afraid to speak of the good news of Jesus for fear of rejection or humiliation? Are you afraid to engage in the fallen world around us with truth? Are you holding on to comfort for you or for your family because it terrifies you to give it up that you might pursue the building of God's kingdom? Well, here's the good news. When you go, you do not go in the name of the king of Persia. You go out in the name of King Jesus, the king of kings, with knowledge that his good hand is upon you. I pray, and I have been praying this week, that we would be a people who are moving forward courageously for the glory of God and the expansion of his kingdom. 
That's what I think we see from Nehemiah. I pray that we would see God as the hero of our story, that we would trust him as we move forward boldly as dependent agents. Let me pray for us. Father, I do ask that as we look at your word, as we continue to study it, as we gather together as a people, God, that you would increase our dependence on you, that you would root out sin, God, that you would cause faith to shine in the midst of fear, that we would be a people who reject passivity, that on our knees we ask for your wisdom and direction and that we move forward boldly. God, use this church, I pray, to cause the gospel to go forth, to make disciples of Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.